There are two things that God feels every day. Probably there's two, but two things are revealed to us in his word. The first is love. For it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And Psalm 42 verse 8 explains, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. The second thing is indignation. Because Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 7 verse 11. Every time I read that verse, I stop at it. Every time I read that verse, it moves my heart. Psalm 7 verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And so we hear about two things God feels every day. Love and indignation. And they're not equal things. I'm not suggesting that God feels both of those things equally or that they're equally part of his character. In fact, they're not, as we'll see a bit later on. But his word says that he feels them both every day. And as we rehearse the death of Jesus once again this morning, both of those feelings are on full display. One of the names we give to this Sunday is Passion Sunday. Because we tell the story of Jesus going to the cross, which we sometimes call his passion. And what a perfect name that is for it. Because it was all about passion. It was the passionate outpouring of eternal love. And also the passionate outpouring of God's indignation. And all the while that God's passion was on full display... The people all around Jesus were pouring out their own passions. Passionate praise, passionate hatred, passionate spite, passionate tears, and passionate gifts of love. Well, do we call this week Passion Week. Everyone in this story is feeling something. And it's important for us today that we feel something too. Some of you don't like to feel. You prefer to keep it bottled up. But today is Passion Sunday, and you have my full permission to show some passion. You can cry, you can dance, you can praise, or you can seethe. The passions of men and the passions of God collide in this holy week. And we're going to see what comes of it, what comes from this collision of love and indignation. So first, let's talk about the indignation so that we can end with love. God feels indignation every day. And I, for one, am glad that he does, because I do too. Don't you? Indignation is the feeling of being provoked to anger because something in the world is not right. Somebody innocent is suffering, and somebody wicked is getting away with it. You're familiar with this feeling of indignation. Beginning with your earliest memories of another child snatching your toy or knocking down a tower you just finished building. Going right through all the bullying and unkindness you experienced in school right up to the present day when your email was hacked or your data was stolen or false charges were put on your credit card or false charges were laid against your character on social media. We all carry a vast accumulation of personal indignation. But that's not all. 
We then add to that all the outrage that we feel at the atrocities we see going on every day in our world. We think about the children who die of starvation in Africa or of disease in the garbage dumps of India or of gun violence in the schools of America or of frostbite in their cars trying to get out of the Ukraine or buried in the rubble of the theater they were hiding of the women who are beaten in their homes or raped or kidnapped and trafficked through our cities or of the men who are tied up and shot through the head by soldiers, of all the murder and the violence and the theft and the conspiracies and the lies that are reported around our world day after day after day. We are angry. And God is angry for the same reason. We feel indignation every day, and how essential is it to our hearts for us to know that God feels it too? And of course, how much more does God feel indignation every day than we do? When every victim is not just a statistic to him, but a name and a story and a creature he loves. When he sees every atrocity on earth, and not just the few that get reported in the news, when the wickedness that is done is against his law and against the conscience and reason that he gave and against his good design. And when he's been watching it, not just for a few short decades, but day after day, year after year, since he first made man upon the earth. The love and the indignation of God are connected, aren't they? God feels the outrage when the people that he loves are treated with contempt. So then, friends, can you imagine the accumulation of God's indignation? How long, how wide, how high, how deep. If every outrage committed on the earth was just a single drop of water, would all the oceans of our planet have space to contain them all? What will God do with that vast store of indignation? Well, in Scripture, he compares it not to water, but to wine. And it gets collected not in an ocean, but in a single cup. And the reason is that those who persist in evil will be given that cup to drink. Because Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51 describes that same cup as the cup of God's wrath, the cup of staggering. And that is where all the indignation God feels every day goes. And then we come to Gethsemane in the garden. As Jesus sweated blood, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus was talking about that very same cup. The foaming wine of God's indignation. It was about to be given to the Son of God to drink. Over here on our south wall, we have the first station of the cross. And Christine Rubino has created a beautiful depiction of that dreadful cup. Jesus prayed that he would be spared 
having to drink it. And in his whole life, that was the only prayer that his father didn't answer. Because it was not possible. If Jesus didn't drink the cup of indignation, then all of us would have to drink it, and all of us would die from it. And Jesus loved us too much to let that happen. As vast as the indignation of God was, it was still finite. It had a limit. But on the other hand, his love had no limit. It was infinite. So Jesus stood up from his prayer in Gethsemane, and he submitted himself to the hands of the evil men, knowing exactly to the last detail what was going to happen, what he was in for. He submitted himself patiently to an outrageous trial, illegal and mishandled in every way. He submitted himself to the mockery of Herod's palace, to the false verdict of guilt from Pilate, to the beating and the scourging of his flesh, to the spitting and the name-calling, and finally to the agony and ignominy of the cross. And he was patient through all of those atrocities because he was practiced. Because all of that was nothing new to him. It's new to us when we read about it here. We see the hatred clearly and alarmingly on display, and we wonder, how could anyone endure such hatred? But it was nothing new to Jesus. He was God, and this had been every day for him. From the beginning of the world, these were the indignities that had been poured on him constantly, spitting, name-calling, lies, false accusations, murderous hatred. He was entirely used to being treated this way. So when we look at Jesus' patience on display here on his trial, see behind it the steady hand of practice. All of this mistreatment merely added just a few more drops of indignation to the cup that was already brimming over. A cup he was already planning to drink to the dregs for the sake of the very people who were doing this to him. So in his patience, observe the overwhelming force of his love. Even in the heat of purest agony to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And don't we believe that all of humanity is included in that beautiful word, them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Roman soldiers were included. The Sanhedrin was included. The cowardly disciples were included. The modern-day thieves and murderers are included. And even the world's least popular man right now, President Vladimir Putin, even he is included, isn't he, if he wants to be? It's being reported here and in Europe that he has committed war atrocities in the Ukraine, that he's shown utter contempt for human life, bombing schools and hospitals, shooting at busloads of orphans, and tying up and executing civilians. If all that's true, then it's pretty much as bad as it gets. Perhaps we'd even go as far as to say that he's a man who even deserves to be crucified, to be executed in what I still think is the worst way imaginable. But would Jesus stand up, even for Putin, and say, wait, Crucify me instead. 
Is that not exactly what he's doing here in Luke 23? That's what we believe, isn't it? That there's enough evil in this world to justify death by crucifixion and enough love in Jesus to take on that death on behalf of anyone. Anyone. So truly God feels indignation every day, but that is not even to be compared with his love. Love is woven into the very character of God. It is inextricably bound up in him. God is love. But indignation or wrath or anger are for him only a temporary response when his eternal love is spurned. God was not angry before the world was made, but he was loving. And he will not be angry after it is destroyed, but he will still be loving. So while it's true that God feels both love and indignation every day right now, they're not at the same scale, and the cross proves it. So we must make a distinction between the work of love and mercy that God does with all his heart and the work of justice and vengeance that he must do for the sake of righteousness. The English Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote that in Lamentations 3, verse 33, when God speaks of punishing, he says... He does not from his heart afflict or grieve the children of men. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy, he he says he does it with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as the expression is in Jeremiah 32, verse 41. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange act. In Isaiah 28, verse 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them. To do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. Those are the words of Thomas Goodwin. And the Puritans rightly identified that love is a natural work of God, innate to his very character. While judgment is called a strange work. So then, we must not think that Jesus was forced to the cross by an angry father. No. Instead, he chose it gladly out of the depth of his own eternal love and for the joy set before him. The result of the cross is that God's indignation is over for the people who belong to Jesus, who have hidden their lives in him. There is now no condemnation if you are in Christ and no indignation either. Praise the Lord. Sometimes we think that there still is, that when we mess up, God's up in heaven frowning at us. But we're wrong. All that's gone now. And the Father looks on his children with nothing but kindness. But there remains in Scripture a warning for the people who will not repent. A warning of the judgment that still stands. Because although the work might be strange to his nature, God promises that he will do what is necessary. So we began today with Psalm 7, verse 11, that God is a righteous judge and a God who heals indignation every day. That psalm goes on, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God would much rather forgive and exact the punishment from Jesus, but we're not universalists. God's word will not allow that in any way. There will be a final reckoning for sin. If not on the cross of Jesus, then it must be in hell. God's love has reached out to us in Jesus. But if we slap away that hand of friendship, 
then we will have to drink the cup of indignation for ourselves. So today I want us to come home to this idea that Sarah brought up, that we have two words in our hearts toward God. We have Hosanna and crucify. We've thought about the two things that God feels every day, love and indignation, and they kind of mirror the two words that we all have in our hearts toward him, Hosanna and crucify. As Sarah explained to the children, Hosanna is a word of praise to God that calls out to him to save us. It's a word that wants to be reconciled with God again. And crucify is the opposite. It's a word of anger and hatred that wants God to go away and leave us alone. It's a word that wants God dead. Now, for some of us, the Hosanna is louder. But if that's the case, we still need to recognize that there's still a crucify in there too. There really is enough sin and wickedness in us to make us stand alongside the Jewish crowd and condemn an innocent man to death. And we need enough humility to recognize the depth of that sin so that we'll continue to bring it into the light to be healed by God. We also feel the rising indignation because of personal offenses or global outrages, and it's going to help us to pull down Psalm 7 verse 11 off the shelf and remember that God feels that too. That's going to help our anger to be calmed by his own determination for justice. If the judge of all the earth will do what is right, then I don't need to be angry. It's also very easy for our anger to direct itself toward God. That's part of the nature of the crucifier that's still in our hearts. We say in our hearts, God, surely this is your fault. Why did you make us so fragile and needy? Why do you place us in this horrible world? Why do you do so little to answer the cries of the poor and the desperate? And why do you wait so long to judge the wicked? We turn our guns on God directly. But when we do that, we should remember Jesus carrying his cross to Calvary. That he laid down his indignation and acted out of his love. Because that act has the power to move us to respond in kind. To lay down our indignation and respond to him and to other people with love. Because as loud as the crucifier might get inside us, there's still always a hosanna. We really just want him to save us and to bring us home. Some of you this morning might only really hear the crucify. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're just visiting here this morning. You came out of kindness to a friend or a family member. Thank you for coming. We're glad you're here. Even if you honestly feel that you hate God, even if you're sure that you would have killed him too. Actually, I never met an atheist who didn't hate God. You might be surprised by how familiar the people in this room are with that feeling of anger toward our maker. But my challenge for you this morning is that there's a Hosanna in there too. The quiet but nagging impulse to praise him, to shout and to wave things, to acknowledge greatness even to fall down and surrender your whole life to him. You can't completely kill the Hosanna, however loudly you want to shout crucify. And I'll admit the crucify that's in my heart if you'll admit the Hosanna that's in yours. Those words in our hearts mean that he's real and that he has to be reckoned with. So to both groups, whether Hosanna is loud or whether crucify is loud, my instruction is the same, that we let the Hosanna win. 
Our God walked into Passion Week feeling love and feeling indignation. He was far more offended by us than we could ever dream of being offended by him. If we want to play that game. And yet he silenced the voice of indignation and acted out of pure love. He swallowed the cup of indignation himself and drained it down to the dregs. And if he can lay down arms and treat us that way, then surely we can find it in ourselves to respond in kind. To love him for his magnificent display of love and to choose that love over our own sense of indignation. To choose to make peace rather than to persist in a war we will never win. Because our indignation isn't right anyway. It's not in line with the truth. He has always been in the right and we in the wrong. We are the ones who have partnered with evil to bring about the destruction of the world, not him. So he is outraged justly, but we unjustly. The olive branch of mercy and peace is now extended to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. Today, while the opportunity remains, let's take it with glad and grateful hearts.